Thank you very much for that nice, nice introduction. I feel you will have had more than enough of me by the end of this, but we may at least get some peace at the end of it, um, or, or perhaps a drink. Um, Georges Clemenceau said famously during the Paris Peace Conference that waging war is easier than making peace. And in a way, you can see what he means, that waging war, you have a very specific goal. It's often a matter of national survival, and you focus on that end. And of course, what happens when a war ends is wartime coalitions tend to fall to pieces. They have come together for a particular goal as soon as the war ends. I mean, you can usually see the strains during the war itself. The coalitions fall to pieces, national interests come to the forefront. And I think you also, it, the more destructive the war is, I think the, the greater the difficulty of making peace because great and destructive wars often leave behind them tremendous chaos um, and they also leave the maps changing, and this was certainly true of 1918-1919. Europe and the world had peace by November the 11th, 1918, but what was left behind by the First World War was a chaotic situation. A number of empires had disintegrated, and the disintegration and the ending of empires, again, is never very easy. We've never really figured out how to do it well. Um, you look at what's happening even today as various empires come to an end and, and you see how difficult it is. Russia, of course, had already gone down the path of revolution and disintegration in 1917 and a number of the constituent parts of the Russian Empire had taken the opportunity to seize their independence. Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. In the Caucasus, Armenia, Georgia and Dagestan tried at least temporarily to maintain an independence. Ukraine had a brief period of independence. Belarus dreamt of an independence. Austria-Hungary collapsed in the aftermath of the war. The nationalisms within it and the exhaustion of the war had really depleted what had been a fairly effective political system. And in its place, a number of small nations began to emerge. Some of them older ones like Poland, some of them newer ones like Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. And one of the, I think, misunderstandings of the peace conference and, and what people did in Paris was that they were said to have made these new states in the center of Europe, and they didn't. These new states and Poland were making themselves on the ground. And what the peace conference did is mostly watch, um, in some cases set the borders, which was not an easy matter, and occasionally call different sides to stop fighting. But these, these, these were forces beyond the control of any peacemakers in Paris. And you also had, of course, revolution in Germany, revolutionary outbreaks elsewhere in Europe. Hungary, of course, was going to have a communist government for six months. On May Day in 1919, the whole Paris Peace Conference had to be suspended as there were armed clashes in the streets of Paris between strikers and the forces of the government and, and the forces of the police. And there was real fear that revolution was going to spread throughout Europe, possibly even further afield. There was a revolutionary outbreak in Winnipeg, um, which was not the normal sort of place you expected to have revolutionary <laughs> outbreaks. Um, we, we, we don't do that very much in, in Canada. And so there really was, I think, uh, a sense that the world had been turned upside down. It wasn't at all clear what was going to emerge. 
And of course, the Ottoman Empire was about to disappear. I mean, its end was, was clearly um, not going to be long postponed the end of the end of the war. And so the First World War, because it was so catastrophic, so great, left behind a situation in Europe and indeed in large parts of the Middle East, which was not easy for anyone to manage. And along with political disruption went economic dislocation. What had been functioning empires, functioning trading blocks, suddenly fell to pieces. And so in Vienna, people were starving in the winter of 1918, 1919, partly because the foodstuffs that had flowed in so, so, so normally in the coal that had flowed in so normally from what was now Hungary were no, was no longer coming. The Red Cross that was working, Red Cross officials who were working in, in Vienna in that winter and in, in the following year said they saw diseases which they thought had been eradicated in Europe 80 years previously. Diseases like typhus began to appear again, um, diseases of, of starvation, children with rickets, malnutrition. I mean, th this was in the heart of what, what had been one of the most prosperous cities in Europe. And I suppose inevitably again, because this so often happens during wars, the allies who had made the victory possible now began to fall out. And you can see the strains among them during the war. They argued over strategy, they argued over who was making the greatest sacrifice, they argued over what sort of peace they would like to see come. They also, I think, began to develop war aims which grew as the war went on. Um, the longer the war lasted, the more it seemed necessary to actually get some sort of recompense. And it was necessary, I think, not just for those who were making policy, but for their publics. The publics expected that after the deprivations of the war, the losses of the war, the damage of the war, that they would get something out of it. And so when the war ended in 1918, the conditions for peace were not all that great. I think it's a real contrast with 1945, when the defeat of the Axis forces was so complete and the power of at least temporarily the alliance and its armies, of course the Russian armies in, in particular, the Soviet armies in particular, was so great that there was to be no question that they would be able to impose the peace they wanted. The conditions in 1918, 1919 were very different indeed. And I think one of the reasons why we look back and see the coming of the peace and the making of the peace in 1919, why we look back and see it as a failure was because they were dealing with probably an impossible task. That's not to excuse some of what they did, but the, the objective conditions for peace um, were not there. I won't go into all the different war aims um, as they developed, just, just very much in shorthand, if I may. Um, the British had very clear war aims. They wanted to destroy German naval power, um, which they had succeeded in doing before they went to Paris. The German, high, so the, the German surface fleet and the German submarine fleet surrendered to the British and those vessels were interned before the war had, before the peace conference met. The British and French had quietly agreed to divide up the Middle East, the Arab territories of the Ottoman Empire, although there was to be some really undignified haggling between them over who was going to get what. And Sykes-Picot was by no means a firm agreement. It was more of an understanding which kept being changed as the war went on. The Italians had very clear territorial aims. And of course, like in, as in other countries, there was a, a clear feeling among the Italian public that the sacrifices of the war should be paid for by uh, the fulfillment of the Italian national dream. The Italians were concerned, and, and the, their allies, I think, were prepared to do this, that they should incorporate the Italian-speaking parts um, that remained outside Italy, but they should also have um, strategically defensible borders, which meant going up into the Dolomites, going up into, into what had been Austrian territory. 
What happened again though, and this is another example of, of war aims growing as the war goes on, the Italians began to claim what was essentially Slavic uh, territory inha inhabited by Slavs around the top of the Adriatic. And this was going to be one of the real issues at the peace conference. And then you had the United States. The United States had come into the war in 1917 and Woodrow Wilson had made it very clear that the United States was not going to be a power like other powers. The United States was never an ally, it was an associate power. And Wilson, in his 14 points, and his four principal speeches, and a number of other public statements, said very clearly that the United States was not coming. You shouldn't mention Woodrow Wilson, he always phones <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> but. He, um, I mean, w Wilson was, was, I think, very concerned the United States should not appear to be after territorial gain for itself. And th uh, this was, this was the, the, the point about the United States being an associate was a very important one to him. The United States was going to be different. It had come in to defeat Prussian militarism. militarism. It was coming in to make the, war, the world a better place, but it wanted nothing for itself. The war ended, as you know, very quickly indeed. Um, the Allies were planning a campaign for 1919. They believed that they would have to fight on. And I think no one, including the German public, realized quite how near the end um, the Central Powers were. Uh, the first one to crack was Bulgaria, which sued for peace for an armistice at the end of September. And then the next week, Germany and then Austria-Hungary asked for an armistice as well. German armies were collapsing on the battlefield. Um, you all know the story of, of Ludendorff and Hindenburg, who finally told the civilian government just how desperate things were and demanded an immediate armistice. Um, then, of course, forgot about a month later that they'd actually panicked um, and began to promote the famous myth of the stab, the stab in the back. Um, Germany, and then Austria-Hungary, and then finally Turkey, um, all sued for armistices. The making of the armistice, particularly the German one, was accompanied by discord among the Allies and left behind it um, a very dangerous perception on the part of the German people. The armistice was negotiated very publicly. The German government, the desperate civilian government, sent a telegram the night of the 3rd of October to Woodrow Wilson with an armistice request. In that telegram, it accepted the 14 points. And the Germans later on were to feel that they had made an armistice on the basis of the 14 points, which among other things said no piece of retribution, no punitive, um, no, no, no punitive measures to be, well, I'm paraphrasing, to be taken. And this was to be one of the many um, strongly held beliefs that, that helped to affect German attitudes towards the peace of the Treaty of Versailles. The Germans felt that they'd been promised a peace a just peace, a fair peace, on the basis of the 14 points. Um, in fact, Woodrow Wilson was going to pull back from that position. The armistice was negotiated in a rather curious way through an exchange of, of open notes and um, mostly by telegram between the German government and the United States. This annoyed the Allies in Europe considerably because they felt they had not been consulted and they were concerned that Germany would get off too lightly. They were concerned also that the United States would be too powerful in Europe. At any rate, I won't go into all the negotiations, but there, were, uh, there was a number of, of open notes, in the course of which Wilson did another thing, which again was going to feed into a German perception that the Treaty of Versailles was unfair. He suggested in a couple of his notes, and also in interviews, that if the Germans changed their type of government, they would be treated leniently. 
that Germany had been an autocracy, that what they really needed to do was develop a different sort of government, of course, like that of the United States. And the Germans did, in fact, do this um, through a series of, of misadventures. They became a republic, and the new Weimar Constitution that was written was to be very much modeled on the American Constitution. What, what again, this, how this fed into German attitudes towards the Treaty of Versailles was that they thought they had A, been promised a peace on the basis of the 14 points, B, had been told that if they changed their type of government, they'd be a new type um, of power. And, and this was a very, very um, strong argument made in Germany in the 1920s. We got rid of the old autocracy. We are not the same Germany. Why should we be punished for, for the sins of a regime that has, has disappeared? The British and the French were annoyed at the way in which Wilson seemed to be taking the lead. They felt that the United States had come late into the war. They knew that they needed the United States. They needed American money to finance their war effort. And American soldiers who were now arising, who had been arriving throughout 1918 in increasing numbers were a very important factor in the rapid collapse of the German armies. But I think both the British and the French felt that they had carried the brunt of the fighting for four years and the Americans were coming in at the last moment and trying to tell them what to do. The French had considerable skepticism, Clemenceau in particular, about Wilson's, a number of Wilson's ideas. Um, the League of Nations said Clemenceau, he said, I like the League of Nations, but I don't believe in it. And I think that was to be a fairly common attitude in France. Where the British were concerned about the American um, armistice negotiations, apart from ending the war too quickly before Germany was really defeated and, and leaving the United States driving policy. The British were also very concerned about the one of Wilson's 14 points, which talked about freedom of the seas. And they felt this would impede the British ability to use blockade as a weapon of war. And there were some very, very heated discussions between among the British themselves and then between the British and the American representative, Colonel House, Woodrow Wilson's great confidant, who he had entrusted with carrying out the detailed armistice negotiations. Um, Wilson himself was, was still, of course, in the United States. On October the 10th, 1918, Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, said to his close friend, George Riddell, about the armistice, he said, and, and the fr freedom of the seas issue, he said, Wilson is adopting a dangerous line. He wants to pose as the great arbiter of the war. His 14 points are very dangerous. He speaks of freedom of the seas, that would involve the abolition of the right of search and seizure and the blockade. We shall not agree to that. Such a change would not suit the country. Now, the British had to back down from that position a bit because they could not afford to fall out with the Americans. So they did, in the end, negotiate an agreement which House agreed to, I think Wilson did not approve of it, that freedom of the seas would be interpreted by the British, that the provision in the 14 points about freedom of the seas would be somehow interpreted away by the British. But I think the making of the armistice did lead to a certain amount of tension and bad feeling among the Allies, and as I say, led to some misapprehensions among the German public and indeed among German elites about what the peace treaty to come would be. The war ended, as you know, on November the 11th. The, we, here we are today in 1918. The armistice itself was a very hardly negotiated one and, and a very, particularly the armistice with, with Germany. The Germans were obliged to evacuate pretty much all the territory they'd occupied, although they did maintain troops in the east. They gave up all their heavy equipment, um, 
tanks, machine guns. Uh, one of the German generals said, can we not have a few machine guns to deal with demonstrations back in Berlin? And I think they were allowed a few. But it, it was, I think, as, as far as the military were concerned, it was their chance to ensure that Germany really was not going to be able to fight again. And I think if you look, and there are others here who know much more than I do about it, but I think if you look at the last days of the German war effort, and if you look at the armistice terms, it was a defeat. It was a complete defeat for Germany. The Germans surrendered and gave up pretty much all their equipment and, and did what they were told. But again, this of course became part of the later mythology that the Germans had never really been defeated on the battlefield, that they, their, their civilian government had forced them to sign an armistice that they could have fought on. And then this again became part of, of the attack on the, treaty, on the Treaty of Versailles. So peace comes of a sort on November the 11th, 1918. The public expectations, of course, of what any peace arrangement were going to be was absolutely huge. I mean, this had been the most costly war in the memory of any European who'd, who'd been in it. And what people wanted out of it was some sort of recompense. I mean, what, what the public wanted, and, and of course there were no opinion polls in those days, but what the public wanted was a mixture of things. I think they wanted recompense for what they had lost, for the sacrifices they had made, for the death of those dear to them. They wanted to be rewarded for the war effort in various ways, often with land. They wanted those who had brought the war about, and they would, that, those were seen at that point very much as those who'd been defeated. They wanted those people to, or those nations to be punished. They wanted measures that would prevent another war breaking out again. And in many cases, they also wanted a better world. Now, these were not compatible aims. They were a bundle of expectations rather than a coherent peace program. But I think there was a feeling that the war had been so catastrophic that great changes must come out of it. And that, of course, again, was going to make the making of peace rather more, rather more difficult. The peace conference opened in January 1919, and it was meant initially to be a conference of the victors who would gather and talk about the peace terms that they wanted to present to the defeated. It was, in fact, initially called a preliminary peace conference, and the idea was that they would simply have a, a few weeks of negotiations, draw up their peace terms, and then they'd sit around a table with Germany, Bulgaria, uh, Turkey, um, now uh, Austria and Hungary, now two separate countries, and negotiate a peace treaty, as they had done at the Congress of Vienna. And the Congress of Vienna was seen very much as a model, because they didn't really have much else to model it, model it on. Um, the British apparently printed thousands of, of visiting cards for all their diplomats, who were told that when they arrived in Paris, they should go around and leave visiting cards on all the other diplomats. And they, they, I think they saw something rather leisurely like the Congress of Vienna, where they would talk in a gentle, gentlemanly sort of way about the peace to come. The trouble was that it took the Allies, and of course there were, there were a great many Allies, some over 30 countries, it took the Allies so long to agree on a common set of peace terms, particularly the German terms, though those were the very difficult ones. It took them so long to reach agreement that by the time they had reached agreement, and it was not till May 1919, that they didn't dare sit down with the defeated and begin to talk about the whole thing again. There was real concern by, by May 1919 that the Allies themselves would begin to fall to pieces. The Italians had stormed out over, over the failure of, of, of the other powers to award them the territory they wanted. And particularly, it so often happens that small and unimportant places become, like those islands in the South China Seas, become a focus of nationalist agitation. And the Italians became obsessed with Fiume at the top of the Adriatic, now Rieja, 
It had never been an Italian war aim, but for some reason, which I find almost inexplicable, it suddenly became a great matter of national importance to the Italians. Um, if they did not have Fiume, they said, we, we, we cannot go on. And the Italian public felt very, very strongly about this, and, and it was actually going to help to lead to the, the destruction of liberal democracy in Italy. And I think the Italians had worked out, the Japanese were threatening to sign, were threatening to refuse to sign the peace treaty over, over their um, resentment about the, the racial equality clause, which I'll mention in a moment. And the Chinese had also said they weren't going to sign the terms because German territories in China, German concessions in China were going to be awarded to Japan. And so what the Allies faced in the, in the late spring of 1919 was the alliance itself falling to pieces the Germans refusing to sign the treaty and the war possibly having to be renewed. And Marshal Foch, who had this wonderful capacity to say yes to his civilian masters, I will do whatever you want, and then to point out how it was absolutely impossible to do what they were asking him, said, yes, I will, of course, you know, wage war if you order me to. However, my troops will have to fight house to house, village to village, town to town throughout Germany, and the losses will be absolutely hideous, and I can't guarantee you victory. And so real concern by the late spring of 1919 that they were not going to get a lasting peace that Germany would accept. And so there was no question of then having another six months of conference as they all sat around a table and tried to negotiate with the Germans. The, so the, what had been a preliminary peace treaty slid really imperceptibly <coughs> into the real thing. The most difficult negotiation, but there were negotiations going on all over Paris or a number of commissions and committees, um, the separate peace treaties with the defeated were being drawn up as well as all sorts of international conventions. But the most difficult one was the treaty with Germany. Germany had been uh, the key, the key, the key nation in, in, the, in, the, in the central powers. And Germany was the, was the country which still maintained a semblance of unity. And, and I think it was feared rightly that it might well be able to produce some resistance. Woodrow Wilson insisted on putting the League into the Treaty of Versailles, and then it was going to be as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, the first clauses in all the other treaties. And this, I think, reflected, I don't think, it, it certainly reflected um, Wilson's concern, and the concern of many, that there should be a better world. One, I think, of the myths about the coming of the peace is that there was a huge gulf between the European allies and the Americans then this was promoted by people like Creel, by Ray Stannard Baker. Uh, Wilson came as a sort of Galahad, a sort of messiah dressed in shining white across the Atlantic, bearing the world the gift of the League of Nations and in a different world order. And he was greeted by a sort of uh, grinning bunch of um, beetle-browed people on the European shores who, with murder in their hearts, who didn't want any part of it, who simply wanted to grab land, go up, get on with their old games of, of intrigue and, and co combining against each other. And this is not true. There were a great many people in Europe who shared Wilson's view. I mean, the Europeans knew very well what the war had done. And there were a great many, not just in the younger generation, but throughout Europe, who really thought that there must be a better world to come out of, of the catastrophe of the First World War. So let me just say something about the Wilsonian world order and, and what the main components were. I'm sure you, you all know. And then I'll say something about some of the other pressures on the peacekeepers. Wilson was first elected in 1912, believed, I think, very strongly in human nature and the possibility of improving human nature. And he believed if you could only show people the right way, they would assent to it. 
He had tremendous faith in what he called the people or the masses or the public, um, dangerously so in a way, and he tended to believe he was the only person who truly could speak for them, which tended to infuriate other European leaders, particularly when he did things like addressing a letter to the Italian people over the heads of their own government. This did not win him many friends. But he also believed that the United States was a different sort of power. He came, I think, very much out of that tradition of American exceptionalism. He believed the United States was a force for good in the world. The United States was a power that could create democracy. He never, I think, truly saw the, own, the, the inconsistency, inconsistencies in his own position. Um, there's a wonderful moment where he's sending troops into, I think it's Mexico, and he says, we will teach the Latin Americans to be Democrats in spite of themselves. <laughs> the, the, I mean, he was, he, was, he was prepared to use his position, um, and he was prepared to use military force to, to, to achieve his ends. But he did have a vision, and it was a very powerful vision, and it's one that still has continued to inform opinion around the world, and I think it still continues to inform American public opinion. Um, not probably the present government that's about to take office. Um, I doubt if, actually, I'm going to say something unkind about Donald Trump. It's hard to resist. I, he may not have heard of Woodrow Wilson at all. <laughs> At any rate, um, what Wilson's, I mean, the key elements in, in Wilson's vision of a better world, of course, were international cooperation, a new organization made up of the nations of the world, the League of Nations, which would provide collective security for its members. Initially, the defeated nations would not be allowed to join, but Wilson, as the son of a Presbyterian clergyman, believed in redemption and he believed that the Germans, once they had sorted themselves out, once they had acquired proper liberal values, democratic values, would be suitable members of the League. He believed in the use, as many did in Europe, the use of arbitration to settle disputes rather than force. And this was something that had grown in tremendous popularity before the First World War. There was a very large interest in the middle classes and, and even, even in, in some of the peace leagues in using arbitration. Between, I think, 1794 and 1914, there was something like 300 international arbitrations to settle disputes. More than half of those were held after 1890. And so if you believed in the world getting better, if you believed in progress, there seemed to be very real evidence that this was happening. He also believed in the re removal of barriers to trade and investment. This was a way he believed, and many believed with him, this was a way of linking nations of the world together and, and removing barriers between them. He believed, at least initially, in open diplomacy. And when the peace conference met, he said we should have entirely open discussions. That lasted for about two days, and then they found it was very difficult to do anything as the press kept on reporting it. But he did believe that the secret agreements, um, many of them made before the war, had helped to create the war. And he set his face very firmly against the secret deals that had been made for example, in Sykes-Picot or the secret deals that had been made with the Italians um, during the war. He, he, he said he simply would not um, have anything to do with them. He also promoted, and this is, is, comes out of a number of his speeches in the 14 points, he promoted disarmament as the way of making the world a more peaceful place. He believed that the spread of democracy would make, again, would make the world a more peaceful place. He believed strongly in the power of public opinion, and he believed that public opinion would continue to keep the world's leaders on the right path. Um, he had great faith in the public, um, particularly when it agreed with what he wanted to do. And he also, of course, talked about self-determination. This is not a phrase he himself used initially. Um, he talked about, in various ways, about the rights of nations to, to govern themselves. He talked about the rights of the, the, the member nations of Austria-Hungary, for example, to, to autonomous 
rule. But he's come to be associated with self-determination. And the trouble with self-determination is it was at the time and it remains a very slippery concept. It's never been entirely clear what he meant by it. He seems to have meant, at least in, in some of his speeches and in some of his conversations, the right to rule yourselves through democratic governments. It's very interesting that when, a when Irish nationalists came, tr came to, to Paris and tried to make an appointment to see him, um, to talk about their cause, he said, I won't see you. He said, you have democratic government, you can vote, you have what you need. And so the idea that every people who identified themselves as a people should be self-governing on a clearly defined piece of territory was not something he seems to have intended, but it was something that his words and the fact that the United States the president was saying it had a tremendous impact on nations around the world. And of course, what was happening in the aftermath of the First World War, both in Europe and, and the Middle East, is that new nations were appearing and peoples increasingly were defining themselves in nationalist terms. And there is a story which appears in H. V. Temple's history of the Peace Conference, and unfortunately I've never been able to find where he got it from, that Wilson actually said when he went back to the United States, if I'd known what was going to happen, I would never have uttered those words, um, because new nations just kept appearing as, as peoples began to define themselves as nations. So what were the other sort of ways of looking at the world in Paris? Well, you had Britain and France, who tended still, I think, although there was considerable public sympathy for the League and, and for Wilsonian ideas, but I think in Britain and France, the statesmen still tended to see things in terms of, of national security and national power. They were prepared to support the League of Nations, but as Clemenceau said, he didn't really have much faith in it. He said, I like it, but I don't really believe in it. Lloyd George was prepared to do the same, partly because it was a way of appeasing Wilson, but I think they still believed that strong national armies and navies and secure borders were, 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 were important. And so there was, I think, a difference of opinion between at least the, 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 the elites in Paris, but a lot of the younger generation, a lot of the younger diplomats, Harold Nicholson, for example, were great supporters of the League of Nations. And a lot of the public, I think, around Europe really supported the League of Nations. There was also um, the whole question, which is an interesting one, of Bolshevism. How much? Arno Mayer argued years ago that a lot of the peace treaties were drawn up with the specter of Bolshevism in mind, and that what really drove the peacemakers in Paris was the need to contain Bolshevism. I think that's overstated. I think it's an interesting argument, but I think fear of Bolshevism was only one of the factors that was helping shape the peace treaty. I think a, a desire for, to achieve national goals, a desire for a better world, these were also important. But it is clear that there was a fear in Paris that Bolshevism was going to spread. You know, the fact that, they, they, you know, that, they, that, that there were these armed riots on the streets of Paris on May Day uh, 1919, I think, is an indication that there were fears, very real fears. Um, sometimes people used Bolshevism. A number of the petitioners, and many petitioners, of course, came to Paris because there was just such a huge concentration of the powerful of the world. M many of the petitioners who came to Paris said, "If we don't get we want, want if we don't get what we want, our country will go Bolshevik." Um, Queen Marie of Romania, who came to Paris partly to try and get her daughters married off and, and also to try and get half of Hungary, um, said, "You know, if I don't get Transylvania, she said, I can't answer for the consequences. Um, Romania will probably go." Bolshevik. Um, sometimes it was used, there's, there's a wonderful series of letters I found from a, a young Canadian, Canadian a lawyer who was in Paris as part of the Canadian delegation and he would write to his wife who was back in Ottawa in the winter and Ottawa in the winter is not the same as Paris in the winter. Um, not as much fun particularly in those days. And she was sitting there in Ottawa and he would write 
wonderful letters saying, well, he said, you know, we're working terribly hard, but Sir Robert Borden, the Canadian Prime Minister, and I managed to get out to the theatre last night. And it is extraordinary how few clothes French women wear at night. And he would then, you know, talk about how he, he and Sir Robert Borden were taking French lessons from Mademoiselle Fifi and what a charming woman she was. And anyway, at one point, the wife obviously wrote, I, the letter has not survived, but it's clear from his letter, she wrote and said, I'm coming to join you. <laughs> and he sent the most wonderful letter back saying, of course, I've missed you tremendously. I'm so glad you're coming. When you pack your trunk, because of course you'd be coming by sea, be sure to put in tins of canned food and some stout walking boots, because when the revolution breaks out in Paris, you may have to walk back to the channel and you may need you to, to carry, we, we will have to carry our own food. He painted this picture of revolution about to break out. Um, not surprisingly, she didn't come. <laughs> but, so. So what were the considerations? I mean, they, the other great, I think there were two other things that they, they were worried about. They were worried if they didn't settle things soon enough that Europe might well collapse into revolution. What they were also worried about was the economic misery that was spreading through Europe. I and mean, this, of course, they feared would feel, feed revolution. They were also dealing with the issues of the ethnic nationalism. I and mean, these were forces which I would argue were beyond their control. You know, I think I mentioned earlier the idea that these nations were drawn in, up in Paris and simply put on the map of, of Europe by the peacemakers is simply not true. They were having to deal with competing demands. They were having to watch from a distance. Occasionally they would try and intervene. Um, they would say, for example, to the Poles and the Czechs, you must stop fighting over the Duchy of Teschen. But they had very little means of projecting their power. The railway networks had been disrupted. Um, the boats that had run up and down the Danube um, had been very largely um, taken. The, 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 the old sort of waterborne trade was, was not going. And so actually getting to the center of Europe and much less getting to Anatolia was really very difficult. And there are endless meetings of first the Council of Ten and then the Council of Four where they talk about how to stop the conflicts that are breaking out all over the heart of Europe over, over territory. Because what was happening with the ethnic nationalisms, and what it was, it was, it was a feeling that all, everything was up for grabs. The empires had disappeared. It was very much, I think, like 1989. If you didn't make your move that year, you probably wouldn't be able to make it. Once things calmed down, once the borders got set, you would not be able to seize what you wanted. And so nations like Poland were seizing whatever they could and staking out claims often on, on very, very shaky historical grounds. History was dragged in to prove that territories had always belonged to a particular nation. Of course, you can imagine what the Greeks did with this. They went back to the classical world and claimed um, a great deal of the coast of Turkey and, and claimed Istanbul, um, claimed parts of the, of the Black Sea, claimed islands. Um, the Italians did very much the same thing. The Roman Empire turned out to be very convenient um, as a way of backing up Italian claims. And you get these sort of meetings of the Council of Ten and then the Council of Four where they sit there and say, you know, we have got to stop these people fighting. We've got to stop the Poles grabbing territory from Lithuania. They're, 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 they're making themselves a menace. We've got to stop the Czechs from trying to grab um, territory as well. And they would call in the military and Foch would come in as he always did and said, yes, of course, I'm ready to obey orders. I will do whatever you say. And then they'd say, well, we want you to stop this particular conflict in the center of Europe, because there were, in fact, a great many small conflicts after the end of the First World War. And he'd say, absolutely, I always obey orders, except I have no troops, and I can't get them there. 
and they would sort of realize that this was impossible. And there's one moment, Lloyd George was always endlessly optimistic, and there's a moment where Foch has said yet again, you know, you may want to stop this war, but I actually can't do anything about it. And Lloyd George turns to his fellow statesmen and says, don't worry, I have an idea how we can do it. And they look to him with great relief, and he says, we will send both sides very stern telegrams. <laughs> But I think you have to realize, you know, this, this, I mean, in, in some ways this is absurd, but they were facing their own powerlessness. I mean, they, they did not have the means of projecting their power. And of course, their armies were shrinking. Their armies were shrinking very, very fast indeed. They had soldiers who wanted to go home. They had publics who saw no reason why so many men should remain in our, under arms. They did in certain armies and certain navies have mutinies. The French Navy, the French Black Sea fleet mutinied. And there was real concern about mutiny spreading elsewhere. They'd seen what had happened in Germany at the end of the war and, and how important the naval and, and army mutinies had been there. And the armies were shrinking. The, the treasuries, of course, the finance departments were saying, we cannot go on paying for this. And so the power they had, which was considerable at the time of the armistice, by the spring of 1919 was very much less. And so they were dealing with a very fluid, very difficult situation. And of course, they were also quarreling with themselves about who, who got what. Um, they did, I think, in some ways do, and I won't say they did a good job, but I, th I think they, they cobbled together what they could. In many cases in the European boundaries, they simply recognized what was already happening on the ground and they gave recognition to what is happening. But the expectations that they were facing, I think, could not have been satisfied. They simply were beyond satisfaction. And Wilson had sensed it. Um, as he came across to the conference on, on his ocean liner, he said to George Creel, who had done wartime propaganda for him, he said, what I seem to see with all my heart, I hope that I am wrong, is a tragedy of disappointment. And in a way, the peace conference was going to produce that tragedy of disappointment. It could not have fulfilled all the hopes and expectations that were placed on it. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't make mistakes and that they could have done better. I think there were very serious mistakes made at the Paris Peace Conference. I think Greece was given a free hand to invade Asia Minor and that was a catastrophe for Greece, a catastrophe for all those Greek communities who had been um, for centuries, for generations, living in Turkey, a catastrophe also for the Turks, the ethnic Turks who'd been living in Greece. Uh, there was going to be a massive change of the exchange of populations at the end of the First World War. At the time, they thought it was a very neat solution to a difficult problem. I think we now conceive of it very, very different, differently. I think you can look at the peace settlements in the Middle East much more critically. Those were really basically imperialist settlements. They were done by Lord George and Clemenceau, who in some ways, I mean, they're very interesting <laughs> transitional figures. They're both old radicals, but they're both figures of the 19th century. And although they've moved partly into the 20th century, they keep the old imperialist attitudes. And Lloyd George, for all his liberal values, and Clemenceau, for all his French radical values, they were both imperialists, and they both thought that the peoples in the rest of the world's Middle East, Africa, were inferior, simply would do what they were told, that they should be divided up among one empire or another. And I think the settlements in, in the Middle East were not entirely, but going to help to create the conditions which have made the Middle East such a very unhappy peace ever since. The peace conference, the formal bit, it ended formally at the beginning of January 1920, but the most intense bit ended in June 1919 with, with the signing of the German treaty. And it really was the German treaty that had been the most difficult one to, to, to deal with. It is 
and remains a very, a very complicated question, the Treaty of Versailles. I mean, it is seen publicly and popularly as a disaster, as the treaty which led directly to the Second World War. And my argument on that has always been that there were 20 years between 1919 and 1939, and what was everyone doing in those 20 years? That you simply cannot blame the treaty itself for what went wrong. The Germans, I think, were never going to be prepared to accept the fact of their defeat. Germany had been defeated on the battlefield, but this was not how the German public saw it, and this was certainly not how the German ruling elites, in particular the military, saw it. The military very actively, and the German Foreign Office very actively, promoted a view that Germany had not been defeated, that it had been betrayed by the stab in the back, liberals at home, socialists, Jews, um, a range of, of peoples who had made it impossible for Germany to fight on. And if you don't think you've been defeated, then you're not going to accept any treaty um, as being fair. And if you don't think, if you think that you were promised by Woodrow Wilson um, a peace based on the 14 points with, with no punitive damages, no, 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 re no retribution, then you're not going to think whatever happens to you was fair. My own view is that much of the treaty was fair. And while comparisons are invidious, I think it was not nearly as tough as the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which Germany signed with Russia, uh, the Bolshe Bolshevik Russia. Um, but the Germans saw it as a, as a piece that should, the, a treaty that they should never have signed. The loss of territory was something that rankled with Germany, although much of the territory Germany lost in Europe was populated by non-Germans. It was Polish territory, which it, they had acquired in, in the um, carve-up of Poland at the end of the 18th century. They lost a few colonies, which had always cost them a fortune and never, never done very much for the German economy, but that again rankled. They, resisted, they resented the fact that they were meant to be disarmed, that they were not allowed to have certain kinds of armaments, even though everybody knew that they were building them anyway. Um, the Germans were meant to monitor their own disarmament. I think there was a very small disarmament commission which had, I think, very, very small allied personnel, and otherwise the Germans were meant to do it themselves, and of course they didn't. You know, you probably all know the joke in the cabarets in Berlin, in Berlin in the late 1920s about the man whose wife was about to have a baby, and his brother-in-law said, don't worry, I'm working in a factory that makes prams, and I will just smuggle out different bits for you, and then you can put it together and you'll have a pram for the new baby. And he smuggled out all the different bits and gave it to his brother-in-law and saw him about a week later and said, well, how's the pram looking, the, the baby carriage looking? The brother-in-law said, I don't know, it's very weird. He said, every time I put it together, I get a machine gun. <laughs> yeah. And the, you know, these are the sort of jokes that were being told openly. And so you know, the, the, the myth of German disarmament was, was in fact a myth. Reparations were the trickiest, perhaps, issue of all. And the problem with reparations was that the Allies were caught the Allied leaders were caught between their own knowledge that they were never going to get that much out of Germany, and in fact it might not help their own economies if they did. I mean, the British certainly did not want to see the German economy exporting too much because that would cut into British exports, and they didn't want to see, on the other hand, the German economy driven into total misery because they wanted to be able to sell to Germany. But they couldn't tell their own publics that. They couldn't say to their own publics, you're not going to get very much. And so what they did was a fudge. The reparations bill was drawn up after the peace treaty had been signed, and it was, designed, it was divided into three different parts. There was one part payable immediately in gold and kind, which the Germans did in fact pay. The second tranche, which was a bit bigger, was going to be paid by German-issued government bonds and again some, some, some materials in kind. When the second tranche had been paid off, the third tranche, which was very much the biggest, would then start to come due. And I think the Allied statesmen knew that they were never going to see 
the third tranche. There was no way it was ever going to be paid, but it was a fudge. They wanted to tell their own publics, don't worry, you're going to get a great deal. And of course, for the Germans, the perception was that we are being given this, we, we are being faced with this crippling burden of reparations. The Germans were deeply unhappy with the peace, but so were a number of the Allies. Um, Italy called its peace, the, the peace that came out, the mutilated peace. Italy did not get everything it wanted, in particular Fiume, and Fiume itself was, was seized by the very strange poet Gabriele D'Annunzio, um, who defied the Italian government, um, said with typical D'Annunzio um, bravado, he said, I will die rather than surrender Fiume. Um, finally, the Italian government sent a ship up to the top of the Mediterranean, which fired one cannonball, and D'Annunzio was out of there very quickly indeed. But it was a very dangerous precedent, um, and Mussolini learned a great deal from it, and I think it really seriously weakened Italian democracy. Um, the Japanese were deeply discontented. They had wanted and expected to be treated as an equal by the European powers. They had contributed to the Allied war effort in various ways. And what they wanted in particular was a clause known as the Racial Equality Clause in the Covenant of the League of Nations, which forbade, it was a clause forbidding discrimination on ethnic and national grounds, religious grounds, and they wanted one um, on ethnic grounds, and the Allies refused to do it. Um, Woodrow Wilson was afraid that he'd lose votes on the West Coast, where there was strong anti-Asian immigration feeling. The Australians were dead against it, um, and the Canadians had reservations, and the, and the clause did not go through. And the Japanese right, I think, always saw this as symbolic of the ways in which the West took advantage of Japan, but were not prepared to treat them as equals. And so what you get with the coming of peace is you get a situation which I would argue the objective conditions for peace were very, very weak indeed. It was not like 1945, an equally catastrophic war, but in 1945 it was quite clear who'd won and who'd lost. In 1919 it wasn't, and the peace agreements that were made were going to leave behind them a wave of disillusionment, bitterness, and a sense that it wasn't fair. Now, I still think that Europe and the world might have avoided the Second World War. There are signs that, and there's been a re-examination of the 1920s, and there are certainly signs that Europe was beginning to get back onto a more stable footing. Um, I would argue the most important step on the way to the Second World War was, was the Great Depression and what that produced. But that's another story. So thank you.